Two years ago, while pottering around in his shed at home, David Collins, the northern editor of the Sunday Times, received a phone call. The person on the other end made an extraordinary suggestion that a serial killer who'd operated in Greater Manchester and Cheshire in the late 90s, early noughties, had gone undetected for decades. Now, in a new book, The Hunt for the Silver Killer, David looks for answers. This is the Manchester Weekly, from the mill. Hello there, welcome to an extra edition of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. I'm Daryl Morris, the editor of the Mill is Yoshi Herman. Yoshi, twice in one week, my friend. Oh my goodness me, what's going on? Well, we did it a few weeks ago, didn't we? And it was such a big success, we had our record uh, record week, so we're going to try it for a few weeks. Here we are. So every Sunday you'll find us in your podcast feed with a little bit extra. We're going to hear from some of the fascinating characters that make up this great part of the world that we love in Greater Manchester and hear some really interesting, fascinating, compelling stories to go alongside your news briefing, which will be with you as usual every Thursday. And this week, Yoshi, we have one of those characters who comes armed with an extraordinary story. This is David Collins, who is the northern editor of the Sunday Times and also longtime Miller as well, right? Yeah, David was one of the first people who sort of took an interest in the mill when I started it. He was tweeting about it and and, and he got in touch at that time. So I've, I've been speaking to David for a couple of years now. He broke this extraordinary story, that, as you say, about these these murder-suicides um, and major questions about that, whether they really were murder-suicides 20 years ago, 25 years ago. His book is currently out and we're really delighted to have him on on the podcast. And a quick warning before we chat to David that this conversation does include details of suicides and suicidal ideation. So if that's something that is difficult for you to hear, just a warning, that's ahead. David, welcome to the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Thank you for being here, David. No problem. Take us to April 2020 and to your garden shed in Sale and you received a phone call. That's right. So it was at the height of the first coronavirus national lockdown. And it was at a time when, you know, if we cast our minds back, you know, the news felt like just an endless flurry, didn't it? Of stats about the pandemic and the and the virus and how awful it was and just everything you, you listened to, read, watched was about, you know, COVID-19. And I got a call sitting in my shed one day from a source and they said they'd come across or were in possession of an absolutely extraordinary document. It was a highly sensitive document which originated from inside Cheshire Police and it was a review that had been done by the senior coroner's officer for Cheshire Police, Stephanie Davis, into two murder-suicides that happened in 1996 and 1999 in Wilmslow. And in both cases, the husband had been basically found by the police to have killed, murdered his wife, and then subsequently killed himself. So that's what the original police findings were. So the review that the senior coroner's officer did was looking at those murder-suicides, and the conclusion was that they were not murder-suicides, that they were the work of a single offender who had still not been brought to justice and that the two husbands involved in those cases had been wrongly accused of murder. And how did you feel when you looked through that document? I mean, it's a, the first thing is, 
I guess it's it was it was a very long document. I mean, it was huge. One hundred and seventy nine pages in it were crime scene photographs. It was an analysis, really, of the crime scenes and looking at the kind of the police's evidence, taking into account all the kind of case files that went into those, you know, police investigation at the time, which were witness statements and the detectives' reports and the pathology reports. So everything was kind of enclosed in this kind of big review. And I, I actually read it in one sitting because, as you know, when you get something like that in as a journalist, it doesn't happen every day, you know, that somebody leaks you something like that, that you read it and you immediately think, my God, you know, this is extraordinary. This review is effectively saying that there is a serial killer who was at work in Cheshire in the mid-90s and hasn't been caught. Dwell on that for a moment, because that is an extraordinary thing to receive. And then I guess that puts that puts David onto you, an element of, uh, I don't know, maybe is responsibility the wrong word? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing was just to, you know, absorb exactly what what she was saying, what her argument was. The author is the senior commons officer of Cheshire. You know, she sits within Cheshire Police. She heads a team of 13 people. You know, she's a high flyer. She's got two commendations from Chief Constable. She's highly qualified in forensics in her own right, blood splatter analysis expert. So... To read that report straight away, she is basically warning the major incident team for Cheshire Police that these cases should be opened up again because there are problems with them. And I guess, yeah, there is a certain amount of responsibility. I mean, I knew it was a great story. Obviously, it's hugely in the public interest. And the reason why it was leaked to me is there was a feeling that basically the report had already been submitted to senior detectives at Cheshire Police and there wasn't anything being done on it. You know, it's kind of been put aside, it's been put in a drawer, collecting dust. And that's why it was leaked to me because it was felt like this is an important issue. It's important for the families. And yet it's it's kind of just been brushed to one side by the police because, you know, with all these things, you know, police forces in the UK at the moment, as you know, they're under huge pressure. You know, they've gone through a huge period of austerity. There is some investment coming back. You know, Boris Johnson is promising that. And we're seeing, you know, recruitment drives across the country. But, you know, this was in when I got it leaked 2020. And even now, the level, you know, police, police pressures are enormous on the daily job. You know, cold cases are very much secondary priority. Whatever police forces will tell you, Police forces will always tell you, we'll never give up on this case, even though it's 30 years old. But, you know, there's only there's a finite amount of resource that can be put into investigations and cold cases are not priority for the police. And tell us more about these cases specifically. There are these two in Cheshire and then there's also one in Manchester and Didsbury. That's um, Michael and Violet Higgins. And they were found dead in February 2000. So can you tell us a bit more detail about these cases? What do they have in common? And what were the features of these cases that raised suspicions that perhaps the original police findings had not been correct? So when you take each one of those cases individually 
I'd say the first two particularly do raise concerns, but it's when you put them together, you see the un- incredible similarities between them. And you've got to remember, murder-suicides of elderly people are extremely rare. You know, in this review, what the coroner's officers did was look at all murder-suicides of elderly people between 2000 and 2019 to see, you know, how often these occurred. And there were only 39 in the entire country in those 19 years, you know, population of the UK, what is it, mm. roughly 60 million, say, mm. and rising. So they, they are rare events. Of those 39, blunt and sharp force trauma attacks, there was only three, actually, out of those cases. And all three of them are in the northwest of England. So that's just how rare they are. So to have two of these types of murder-suicides in a, in a town like Wilmslow, 25,000 people, and shortly afterwards, you know, just down the road, seven miles away in Didsbury, to have the same thing happen again is a statistical anomaly. So to go to the first case, that's the case of Howard and B. Ainsworth. So that happened in 1996. They lived in a kind of semi-detached home on Gravel Lane, lovely area, very affluent, you know, houses down that street go for, you know, anything from half a million to a million pounds. Howard was a retired parks gardener uh, for the council. B worked in a funeral home, happily married, no history of domestic violence, no health problems. They were financially secure. There's not a hint, not a shred of evidence that was ever found to suggest why Howard might have wanted to have so brutally murdered his wife in such a way. The crime scene itself was interesting because when they went in, they found a suicide note. It steered the investigation quite strongly towards the murder-suicide theory. And in the note, it laid out how Howard was going to kill his wife. And it talked about kind of basically how she had an illness and their quality of life had gone so he was going to give her pills and throttle her and take his own life. So the first thing that is very odd about that is that that, that didn't happen. That is not what happened. B was beaten brutally with a hammer. She was hit over the head more than a dozen times. She had a kitchen knife pushed into her forehead. She was beaten. There was a ligature found in the bedroom. And Howard himself was found with a bag over his head. There were sleeping tablets found next to his bedside, which he didn't take, which is a kind of a common form of taking your life is the pills and bag method. What any expert will tell you is that it is extremely difficult to take your life with just a bag. No matter how much you want to to do it, what they say is at the kind of the critical moment, if you like, you will always try to save your own life it's human instinct which is why people tend to combine the two things so that was odd that he had pills there he didn't take them he made it harder for himself but what the review found i mean the coroner's officer at the time her name was christine hurst she identified a number of flaws at the time with the police's case biggest one she saw was basically b is 
covered in blood. So is the bed, the bedroom, the headboard, the walls, the wallpaper. You know, there is a lot of blood. Howard barely has a drop of blood on him. He's lying next to her in bed, practically spotless, in his kind of mint green pyjamas. So that was something that was spotted at the time by the coroner's officer. And later, when the senior coroner's officer of Cheshire, Stephanie Davis, did her review, this was something that she noted, saying, you know, this is highly unusual. You know, we've got a murderer here who's basically beaten someone with a hammer. Um, a lot of blood on the scene, and yet the murderer hasn't managed, has managed to get no blood on him. There's a murder weapon, the hammer, that's been washed in the sink. The obvious question there is, why someone who's going to take his own life bothered about washing down a murder weapon? That's got far more in common with somebody trying to get away with it. There's the positioning of Howard's body. It's really quite unusual. He's kind of lying with his arm trapped underneath him and his hand where it looks like basically he's been moved after he's been killed and put down on the bed, trapping his arm underneath him. In the Didsbury case, there was the fact that Michael Higgins, who supposedly killed his wife and then killed himself in, in a brutal fashion, he had Parkinson's and members of his family said he struggled to sort of make a tea. He was kind of quite physically dis you know, debilitated by that. That was another one that was a bit of an eye-opener, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, looking at the flaws in that first case, and then there's also flaws in the second, and the, the Didsbury one is the third. What the review does is it really forensically dissects the Wilmslow killings. What it says is, we've got such concerns over these murder-suicides that it is worth looking at the wider trends. And that is why the Didsbury one is linked, and the one in David Hume... They've not gone into the police files or the coroner's files in those cases, but they have looked at them because they are so similar. It's a similar time frame and there are potential flaws in the police's rationale. The biggest one being that Michael Higgins had advanced Parkinson's. So what the family, the neighbours and his friends will tell you is that he could barely function you know, he struggled to get out of bed, to dress himself, to shower himself, to make and hold a cup of tea. This same person was apparently kind of capable of beating someone to death with a blunt implement, then killed himself by, you know, basically stabbing himself and, and using a coat hanger to, to finish himself off, strangle himself, which requires... You know, in the family's words, you know, a lot of strength and dexterity, basically, are the two things that that requires, which the family just don't believe that he was capable of. There is another side to the Higgins case where the police looked in detail at their personal lives. And unlike the Wilmslow killings, the police did find what they call a trigger event. So in the case of Howard and B. Ainsworth in Wilmslow 1996 and Donald and Ward in 1999 the police could not find what they call trigger events which are essentially the police will go into any situation like that and try to work out is it something to do with their health is it something to do with their finances have they had bad news has there been a falling out in the family they'll do all those kinds of standard things detectives do to work out what on earth was the motive what happened they didn't find that in the first two on the third there was an argument that because of the strain that Michael's condition was putting on Violet, it was causing problems in a marriage, which obviously it would. 
She'd essentially become almost a full-time carer for Michael near the end. So basically that steered the police investigation into saying there's no third-party evidence, we can't find evidence of an intruder, and despite Michael's frailty, we believe it's the most likely explanation for what happened in the house that, that day. I think I just want to ask you, I mean, I don't want to kind of uh, give away what exactly what happens in your book, which comes out this week, but this is definitely a situation that's completely unresolved, it's fair to say. And what's it like for you as a journalist kind of pursuing a story where when you're pursuing it really hard and you really think there's some, some discrepancies and clearly like very senior coroners also have come to that view about these cases. What's it like as a journalist knowing that the police are not taking it as seriously as you seem to be? Like, has that been kind of a frustrating process for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of journalists, I always think, are like the ultimate outsiders. You know, we're always on the outside looking in to kind of situations and organisations. And I've seen it again and again in public life and public bodies, the way that public organisations shut down and close ranks to protect reputation. You know, I've just done a story last week on North East Ambulance Trust, where they were covering up and doctoring, you know, documents that were supposed to be released to the coroner to cover up the mistakes made by paramedics. You know, this goes on in public life. I don't think it's quite as kind of, it's not, I'm not comparing for one moment Cheshire Police and NIAS in, that, in this situation. I think anyone who reads the book will be able to see there is nuance to these killings, even, even the Wilmslow ones. You know, there's really strong evidence that contradicts what the police have concluded. But also, you can see why the police actually, certainly in the second case, came to those conclusions, I think. You know, they're not so outrageous that you're going to read it and think, my God, the incompetence. But I think, you know, with 20 years of hindsight and new forensic techniques and new criminal analysis and understanding of blood stain pattern analysis which didn't exist in 1996 you know you're applying modern techniques to old cases you can start to see weaknesses in what the police concluded so i think that is an interesting one for the readers and i'll be interested as an author to see what do they make of it because the book doesn't hold back you know, it really puts in everything, every detail, even the evidence that weakens the argument that it's not murder-suicide. Everything's in there. Because I think it's important, you know, when you're watching kind of documentaries like Making a Murderer and you're listening to podcasts like Serial and things like that, as a viewer, a consumer of true crime, you know, it's there's two things that are important for me. You can't come to it with an agenda or a bias. And the equally important thing is... You've always got to have the families in mind when you're writing it because there are sensitivities involved and the stuff that didn't go into the book because of that reason. There's stuff that didn't go into the book because of legal reasons. But I think what the book does do is give a really fair account of the police's evidence, why they came to their conclusion, but why the coroner's officers have come to their conclusion. And at the very end, you get my view. I think with a book like this, where it is unresolved, as you say, I think people will be interested to know in the end what I think. But I, I held that back for as long as possible until basically the second last chapter where I do give you a kind of considered view of what I think on the balance. 
but you don't get that to the very end. Well, that's a perfect natural dot, dot, dot right there, David, and makes the book really, really, really worth reading, not that it wasn't already. The Hunt for the Silver Killer, which is out now. David, congratulations on uh, on publication week. Thank you for uh, spending some of it with us. And I would really recommend as a read, not just as a, a fascinating story in itself, David, well told, but also, as you say, some of the complexities of policing and justice and also, to a degree, human nature in there as well. David, thank you. Oh, hey, Yoshi, David Collins, what a fascinating chap, an interesting book, and, may I say, uh, a strong start to our new twice-weekly episode of the Manchester Weekly. Yeah, definitely, really, really interesting. Obviously, a really grim conversation, but fascinating reporting he's doing, and you can read more about it in our weekend read on on The Mill this weekend. Yeah, do that. More from David Collins, manchestermill.co.uk is where you go to find that, and subscribe as well. More fascinating stories and interesting people like that one, manchestermill.co.uk. We'll be back on Thursday for our usual news briefing, so we'll get you everything you need to know in and around Greater Manchester every Thursday, and then another deep dive into a story on Sunday. Don't forget, hit subscribe. Make sure that you get the Manchester Weekly in your podcast feed when a new episode lands we'll see you on thursday for now yoshi thank you thanks see you soon